Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. God's given us a vision to be a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. And we support that each week with giving, and I want to invite our hosts forward. Even though most of us give online, we still want this to be part of our liturgy because even as you pass that bag, even now, think of two or three gifts that God's given you and say thank you in your heart to the Savior this morning, the giver of every good gift. One thing that the staff is thankful for, and I think you will be too, is that next week, Nick Lillo is back. Yeah. If you're new to Waterstone, we've just uh, undergone our first ever lead pastor transition after 35 years. Nick Lillo has transitioned into another seat on the staff, and so he took three months and kind of figured out what's next for his journey, and we took three months to figure out how to reshuffle our whole staff, and uh, we feel good about that. We feel great about Nick coming back. We've missed his voice around here. So he'll be preaching. And just to give you some direction where we're going the next few weeks, have you heard, right? Have you heard Easter's coming? Okay. Just in case you hadn't thought about it. So we uh, always take these weeks before Easter and talk about Jesus. And specifically next week, Nick's going to be talking about the final prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, which was for us. It's a really interesting passage. And then after that, Paul Joslin's going to be preaching on Jesus' final moments on the cross. Because here's what's true. The deeper that we go into the cross before Easter, the deeper the joy will be on Easter. So we hope you'll be here these next few weeks as we prepare for Easter and uh, that you'll bring people with you. We have a lot of seats that have people's names on it that are in your lives. And so uh, invite them. See what happens. Take courage. I'm still going to do it. I've done it to two other services. I'm going to begin with a stanza from a poem. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil. Whether tempter said or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore. Desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted. Tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven. How many of you had to read that in high school? Yeah, okay. (laughs) I have no idea what it means. (laughs) It's a strange poem. And as near as I can figure, Poe is talking about a guy who's bereaved because he's broken up with his girlfriend. Her name, as you might recall, is Lenore. And he can't decide if he wants to get her back or if he should move forward. And he's really asking in the poem, will I ever be happy again? And then this bird 
keeps showing up, this raven, tap, tap, tap on the window. And he says this word over and over again, nevermore. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, we were in Dallas last week. Jan and our youngest son, Luke, and I were visiting our oldest son, Ethan, who's teaching school in Guatemala. We were at Dallas Airport. Lightning and hailstorm came through. Long story short, we did an all-nighter in the Dallas Airport. So we're standing to get a reboarding pass at 2 in the morning. Right directly behind me as we stand in line is a college-looking age girl, and uh, she's holding in her hands the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe. So I asked her, what specifically are you reading from the book? And she said, well, we have to do an essay on the raven. Now, at two in the morning, you have to make significant decisions about how deeply you're going to neighbor with another person. <laughs> you know, at Waterstone, one of our rhythms, our spiritual disciplines we practice is called neighboring, where you pray for your neighbors who you live and work and play with, and then you engage them in conversation because our lives unfold one conversation at a time and we want to be part of others' lives through conversation. And then you invite them to engage with Jesus, to, to come to your table for hospitality, to come to church for Easter, whatever. Two in the morning, you have to decide how deep do you want to go. Well, I couldn't resist. So I turned to her and I said, is there? Is there balm in Gilead? And she said, without missing a beat, not in Dallas, there's not. <laughs> what does Poe mean? I'd love to have coffee with you and talk about it. Here's what I think. I think what Poe is saying in this poem is that we don't just have one big death at the end of our lives, but rather life is a series of small deaths whether it's the breakup of a romantic relationship, whether it's a new job, whether it's a job that takes you to another place and you have to relocate geographically, whether it's raising your kids and they go, grow up and they leave home and break your heart, whatever it is, our life is a series of small deaths that we have to grieve through. I think Poe's onto something. I was at King Super's at Hampton and University a couple months uh, in December. I, one of my annual traditions is to go to the Handel's Messiah. I think I've done it for 25 straight years. Jan is sick of it, so I go by myself. Uh, if you ever wanna come. And um, so it was over at Bethany Lutheran. It was a four in the afternoon, sat through it. Jan texted me, pick up some stuff at King Supers. So I stop at the King Supers at Hampton and University. Now, those of you that have been around Denver a long time, Remember with me, what used to sit at the northwest corner of Hamden and University? Denver Seminary. So I'm in the soup aisle picking up the goods, and I have this moment. This was the exact spot where the library was at Denver Seminary, and I, and I went there, and I sat in this exact space and had these conversations with God about these silly papers that we had to write in seminary. And I got, I have to say, I confess, a little verklempt. It was emotional. What was that? Tap, tap, tap. Nevermore. Have you ever wrestled with the raven? Gone through a season of your life that's now finished and you will never have it back. You know, 
when we go through those times, it's not only bereavement and sadness, but it's this also feeling of, you know, it goes so fast. Does it mean anything? Does it count? Do I count? Tap, tap, tap. You know, you read enough literature, you start seeing the raven everywhere. Eldest Huxley, most men and women lead lives at worst so painful, at the best so monotonous, poor and limited that they urge to escape the longing to transcend themselves if only for a few moments is and always has been one of the principal appetites of the soul. Tap, tap, tap. Or more recently, Philip Yancey, when I travel overseas, see some link to reality, disconnects, and I seem to float above humanity, observing from a lonely plateau how people in Japan or Egypt or wherever, in some ways like me and in some ways not, predictably sequence their lives. Children learn to communicate by talking about pooping and tinkling, then grow into repressed adults, then make their own children out of nothing but their own bodies, then, in senile old age, revert once again to conversation about pooping and tinkling. <laughs> What is the point of this merry-go-round? How do we differ from other animals? Smarter than ants, surely, but far less cooperative. Why are we here? Or from one of my favorites, G.K. Chesterton. He put it in a sentence as he usually does. All men and women matter. You matter. I matter. But it's the hardest thing in theology to believe. So today, tap, 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 I want us to work on our mattering. I think we have one of the best texts in front of us for mattering. And in a moment, we're going to read it, and then we're going to talk about some implications from this text that tell us how much we matter from the one from whom we need to hear it most. Jesus says we matter. Now, this is a great text, so I want each of you to experience it twice this morning. One time, I want you to sit and just listen to it, soak in it. Pretend that you're in the audience and you actually hear Jesus speak it to you. And then the other time through it, I want you to actually say it and read it aloud. So how are we gonna do this? First time through, the men are gonna read it and the women listen. And then the second time through, the women are gonna read it, and the men sit and listen. Okay? Men, first, with gusto. Here we go. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Women, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness,
The word of the Lord. There are three truths in this passage of the hundred. I've chosen three. The first one's implicit. It's implied in the text. And then the second two are uh, explicit. The first truth is this, that if we are salt and light, what's implied is that we must live in a place that's decaying and dark. That's the implication. Now, when the ancients would have heard Jesus speak this, unlike us, who when we hear salt, typically think of it as seasoning on potatoes and what, cantaloupe and you know, salt. Uh, we in the uh, modern world see seasoning, Jesus' audience heard preserving, packing fish in salt to, to suck the moisture out, to dry it out. And something that was preserved by salt in that culture could last months and winter uh, to get to the next season of fresh meat and fresh fruit. Salt was a preserver. Now, in the days before refrigeration, Salt was a valuable, valuable commodity. Now, light. In the same way, in the ancient world, before electricity and electric lights, it would be common for you to be in darkness that was thick. You know, have you ever been in thick darkness that you can't see your hand in front of your face? I remember for me, a moment that stands out was a couple years ago, I was in Mali, West Africa, with one of our missionaries out in the bush, and there was no camp, it was a night, Moon and stars covered by clouds, campfires out, generators down, thick darkness. As in often the case, I had to get up in the middle of the night, go to the restroom, made my way out, went to the restroom, made my way back just by feeling for the shanty that we were staying in. I got in the shanty, but I could not find my sleeping bag. So I'm down on my hands and knees for 30 seconds, and then I hear this click, click. And Doug Wilson, the missionary, says, you never go into the bush without your bick. And he lit that thing up and the whole room illuminated. And it's a good thing it did because I was still going the wrong direction for my sleeping bag. Thick darkness. Jesus is saying, you are salt, you are light because we live in a place of decay and darkness. Let's unpack that for just a minute. What does it mean to live in a place of decay? Well, first there's physical decay. Flowers decay swiftly. Mountains decay, decay slowly. Human beings decay surely. I know some of us are working hard to stay ahead of it. Some of us need to work a little harder. I was on that flight home, and I read an article in the American Airlines magazine uh, about a surfer named Laird Hamilton. You heard of him? He was known in the 90s when he was a god on the beach for riding the most dangerous wave ever. I don't think he holds that distinction any longer, but he rode a 20-foot wave in the shallow water over coral reef. He rode it home. He married a volleyball goddess named Gabrielle Reese, and Laird Hamilton rocks. But I saw this picture of him. He's 55 years old. Where did that go? Now, I looked at him, and my first thought was, wow, 55, he looks pretty good. My second thought on its heels was this, but even surfers get old. We also have social decay. In spite of Facebook and Google's and Instagram's best efforts, our communication skills in our culture are hurting. 
And you know, right, if you let a friendship go too long without input, if you let a marriage go too long without energy, if you let between the races go too long without humility and communication, what happens in those relationships? Darkness, decay. Thirdly, psychologically, I know few people who are naturally happy, few. Most of us need self-care, healthy diversion, and input because we know that in our lives, psychologically, anxiety and depression are just around the corner. We also live in a place of cosmological decay. Perhaps the easiest scientific law to observe because it's so repeatable is the second law of thermodynamics. Do you know from high school, remember that? It says that in our world, things are in a permanent state of running down without, and without outside energy infused, they will decay or go to pieces or get cold. Even Batman knows it. Now, existentially, this is the last type of decay we're really uncomfortable with. I'll just be blunt. Fact is, you're dying. Your existence is coming to an end. Existential decay and darkness is in your future. We are here at Waterstone to pump you up. <laughs> now, where this gets really kind of hard is if in our culture you run into people, and perhaps there's some sitting here, you know, we always have people at Waterstone just seeking and trying to understand this whole Christmas, uh, Chris, I always say Christmas thing, Christian thing. But if you live and your worldview is currently that there's no God and that there's no life after death, I think this gets especially hard because what you have to figure out is a way to pump meaning into your life that you come up with. Uh, it's interesting to see people struggle with that. Recently, uh, one of my favorite guys I, I try to follow, his name is Elon Musk. Perhaps you've heard of him. He has started at least three billion dollar industries, name them with me, PayPal, Tesla, and uh, SpaceX. And I've heard there's a fourth, something about digging tunnels. This guy's got way too much time on his hands. But um, Elon Musk was interviewed in Rolling Stone magazine. Do you believe in God? I try to wait, let the weight of evidence determine my opinion. Do you have a spiritual practice? Not really, I believe in science. What do you think happens when you die? I think this is a very interesting answer. I think you cease to exist. I hope I'm wrong in a positive way, but most likely you're just gone. You know, what do you do in an airport when, sorry, you're getting all my vacation vent in one sermon. <laughs> At Dallas airport, all nighter, what do you do? Well, you watch the television. What do they have? The History Channel. Go Dallas, good job. Now, you walk through the 60s, you walk through the 70s, you walk through the 80s. I was a kid in my 20s in the 80s, and, uh, but I bet you holler out if you live through the 80s, the most famous statement that Ronald Reagan ever made in the 1980s. What would you guess? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. The Berlin Wall fell. But I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about our sermon, and it dawned on me. Why did we get so excited? I mean, if there's no God, and if there's no life after death, 
In the big picture, what difference does it make if nuclear war is postponed by five years, 5,000 years, or five million years? In the end, who cares? It's meaningless. Meaningless. You know why? Because the fall of the Berlin Wall doesn't change the death rate at all. You know what the death rate is? One per person. <laughs> Why do we get so excited? We live in a world of decay and darkness. But here's the first explicit truth. In this world of decay and darkness, Jesus has come. He who is salt, he who is light, and he who makes us salt and light. Let's start there with explicit truth. Okay, Jesus. His arrival was predicted 700, 600, 400 years before he came. And then he came, and then he told his followers when he was with us his own life cycle, that he's going to teach and preach and heal and display the, the kingdom of God in front of our eyes. And then at the end of it, in just a matter of months, He's going to be killed at the hands of religious leaders and government authorities, and then three days in the grave, and then rise again. He told us, and then he did it, and he walked out of his own grave by his own power. You have to agree or disagree with that. That's the truth that changes everything and makes Christianity unique from all other worldviews. Jesus is the one talking in these verses. And then you have to ask, who's the one writing? Well, Matthew. Matthew's the one who's writing this. And Matthew was one of the inner circle. He was one of the witnesses that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. So you have to absorb that. What does that mean? That means that Matthew would assert, because of eyewitness testimony, seeing the risen body of Jesus and the promise of eternity and the kingdom, Matthew would say, okay, when it comes to sin, when it comes to sickness, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to death, because Jesus is risen, never more. Never more. Do you know what happens when that man, the only man, Jesus, to walk out of his own grave by his own power, over 20 plus centuries, appears to people through his spirit and says to them in places like this, follow me. Do you know what happens? People get infected with resurrection. Infected with resurrection. C.S. Lewis described it this way. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Disciples of Jesus, those who've pledged ultimate allegiance to him, are infected with resurrection. And because they are they have become salt and light. So how does that preserve culture and history? Let me give you three quick flashpoints. First, think about sickness with me. 
Rodney Stark, in his landmark book that we want everyone at Waterstone to read, Rodney Stark teaches at the University of Washington, he describes in this book how the Christian movement started with a handful of people and in a 300-year time span reached the highest levels of the Roman Empire and basically dismantled every known empire at that time. How did that happen? Well, one of the ways Starks talks about is that in the first three centuries after Jesus, there were two massive plagues that hit the Roman Empire. And when they would come and word would come to the cities, the elite would flee because they had resources. The medical professionals would flee because they didn't want to die. Do you know who stayed? Guess. Christians stayed. Why? Because they were infected with resurrection and knew that nothing that happened here is the last word on their life. And what happened? The roots of the modern-day hospital were found in the Christian movement. Another flashpoint. Let's think about slavery. It's always been Christian movement on the front edge of abolition movements, whether it's in the 16 and 1700s with men like William Wilberforce, whether it's in our own battle here in America in the 1800s with women like Harriet Beecher Stowe. Do you remember her? She was a pastor's daughter. She was taking communion. Jesus gave her a vision of a slave master beating a slave. It so troubled her, she went home and wrote the whole vision, word after word, chapter after chapter, sent it to a publisher, and Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, called Uncle Tom's Cabin was the most read book outside of the Bible in the 1800s so that when Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said to her, so you're the little lady who started this great war. And another flashpoint. Whenever Jesus and anyone who's been infected with resurrection enter a culture, the status of women is elevated. I want to read from another great book, uh, Who Is This Man? by John Ortberg. It's a longer quote, so I don't have it on the screen. Just wrestle with me. Is it possible that the church has still not caught up to Jesus? Yeah, I think that's possible. <laughs> Sigmund Freud once famously or infamously wrote... The great question that has never been answered and which I have not yet been able to answer during my 30 years of research into the feminine soul is, what does a woman want? <laughs> Freud's stock has not been rising for the last 50 years or so, and his views on women have not helped. How striking that Jesus although he lived 1,900 years earlier, seemed remarkably absent of condescension toward women. He seemed in his life and interactions to somehow know what eluded Freud. Ortberg goes on. A contemporary of Freud's, a brilliant scholar-writer who happened to be a woman, was quite clear on what she wanted. Dorothy Sayers, was the first woman to receive a degree from Oxford, which she did, by the way, with first-class honors. She became a devoted follower of Jesus, and here tells a little about why. Quoting Dorothy Sayers, 
I think I have never heard a sermon preached on the story of Martha and Mary that did not attempt somehow to explain away its text. Mary's, of course, was the better part. The Lord said so, and we must not precisely contradict him. Remember, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and anointed his feet with oil and worshiped him, while Martha was in the kitchen complaining that no one was helping her. Dorothy Sayers goes on, but Martha was doing a really feminine job, whereas Mary was just behaving like any other disciple, male or female. That is a hard pill to swallow. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There has never been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, who never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without demeaning and praised without condescending, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. End of quote. Yeah. Now Ortberg adds, what are the odds that a brilliant Oxford-educated scholar would say 20 centuries after Jesus' birth that the reason Mary was so drawn to this young itinerant rabbi is that to this day there has still not been another man like him. Salt and light, the status of women elevated. Light, we are called salt, we are called light. Now when Jesus is spoken of in the Gospel of John as being the light, you look at a verse like John 1, 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the one and only, full of grace and truth. And then four verses later, we read, no one has seen the Father except the Son. And in the Greek it reads, and the Son has put the Father into words. And then you go to the most unpopular verse in the Bible in our culture. John 14, verse six, where Jesus says bluntly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you take that at face value and believe it, what you're saying and what's implied is that in every other worldview, there is less than whole truth. There are elements of truth, but you miss on the big, capital T, truth. In our culture, that's unpopular. In fact, last week, Jesse preached, and he quoted a recent Barna poll where they surveyed 1,000 Christian millennials, and 47% of Christian millennials said and believe that it's wrong to share the Christian worldview with another person 
from another worldview and ask that person to leave their worldview and come to yours. Wrong. Now, I have my opinion on that. I think what's happened is that in our culture, disagreement has been made equivalent to judgment. So that if you disagree with someone, you are automatically perceived as condescending. We've lost the ability in our culture to disagree. And we've earned some of that, folks. We need to own it because we disagree in nasty ways. We've earned it. And I get it. No one wants to be perceived as judgmental. But if you think about that, isn't that actually the most intolerant approach you could ever have to say that you're not allowed to disagree? That is the uttermost intolerance. That's for another message. If you'd like to listen to a message on John 14, 6, there's one on our website called, Is Jesus the Only Way? And you can find it there. But what I do wanna, wanna talk about is that as Jesus put the Father into words and as light, we too are to be light and, be, and put the Father into words. Now, it's, it's a fair question. When you're, dis- you're talking to someone and you're exchanging worldviews, I've had someone and people over the years say this to me. But wait, what you're saying, Larry, is this. You're saying that my founder, you know, Confucius, Muhammad, my, my founder is just a mere human. And, and they're dead. And you're saying that your founder of your religion was dead, but came back to life. And I'm saying, yeah, it's exactly what I'm saying. And you've got to agree or disagree. But here's the question. The question someone once put to me, and I thought it was a brilliant question. Then he said, what you're saying then is that your founder is God or a God-man. Wouldn't that make you arrogant if your founder's God and my founder's dead? Well, that is a brilliant question. And let me answer it. How did that happen? Because what actually happened, it's true. Christianity was germinated in the most inclusive worldview we've ever known, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire's view of religion was this. As long as you say Caesar is Lord, you can worship your big toe. What happened? Well, in that inclusive environment, In the Roman Empire, it didn't produce inclusive behavior. Inclusive belief didn't produce inclusive behavior. Because in the Roman Empire, the rich had nothing to do with the poor. But in Christianity, they did. In the Jewish faith of Jesus' day, the Jews did not mix with other races. But in Christianity, they did. So you have to ask the question, how is it that a movement grew so rapidly with an exclusive belief Jesus is Lord. And it produced such inclusive behavior that the movement was known for love and humility and honesty. How did that happen? Here's how it happened. When you realize that the founder of your movement died on a cross for people who hated him and you take that to be the center of your life, your heart changes. And you become a person of love and humility and grace. That's how it happens. Now, 
That's the first explicit truth. The implicit truth is we live in a world of darkness and decay, but into this world has come Jesus, who's brought salt and light. And he's now left and sent his spirit and called us to follow him, and in calling us to follow him, we become beautiful people, beatitude people who live the Jesus life. So we become salt. So real quickly, what does that mean for us to become salty? Well, it's interesting, right? For each statement, then there's like this little parable that says, but if a salt loses its saltiness or your light, but don't cover up the light, what does that mean? Jesus is not talking as a chemist because salt is a stable compound. The only way salt can go bad is how? If it gets mixed up with something, water, sand, sugar, mud, whatever. You have to stay distinct. You cannot blend in. Salty Christians stay salty. How? Well, there are any number of ways. Take any area of life. Let's take the big one, work. Christians are salty workers. What does that mean? It means we ask a totally different question about work. We ask totally different questions about everything. But work. In our culture, why do most people work? Most people work for what they can get out of it. Why do Christians work? Christians work for what they can give to it. That's a whole radically different work ethic. So the goal of a Christian is to have their cubicle be the place where someone knows if they walk by and they wanna talk, they're gonna be listened to. If someone walks by, they're gonna get words of encouragement from that cube. If someone comes up, they may never know this, but there's gonna be prayers pouring out of that cubicle for that person. And if you look into that cube, you will see a Christian working because a Christian knows it's not just a job, it's a contribution to the common good and the advancement of God's kingdom. Every Christian, no matter what you do for work, unless it's illegal, you are in ministry, advancing the kingdom of God. So Christians are salty, distinct with work. We could take that through every layer of life. I wanna give you one other, but I'm not gonna talk about it. Instead, I'm gonna implore you to read this book. Because the other thing you do on a flight home from Dallas is you read a book. I read this book. It's the Christianity Today magazine book of the year. I said, oh, sure. I read it, and I'm convinced. Now, this book, let me just set it up for you. Take a picture of it. Maybe you will after I tell you. It has the best chapter on sex I think I've ever read this year. It uh, has the best chapter on marriage I've read in a long time, and I'm gonna rewrite all my marriage message, wedding messages. It has the best chapter on parenting I have ever read. Now, I warn you, Russell Moore is a Southern Baptist. You're not gonna agree with everything. You shouldn't. <laughs> but this book will stoke you. You need to read it to be a salty Christian. Now, we're also to be light. Jesus says we are light. What's that mean? Uh, what I would say, you know that word, let your good deeds show the word good there is beautiful. You are to be a beautiful image of Jesus. You are to be a preview of what's coming because of the resurrection, a preview. Now, after 50 some years of watching movies, I finally figured something out. Maybe you have this sooner. 
I have finally figured out that every good scene in a movie is in the preview. <laughs> Did you know that? Now, that makes you want to watch most every movie. Do you know that there's a big story coming to town? It's a story that's been written by the Heavenly Father. It's been produced by the Holy Spirit. Its central figure is a hero called Jesus Christ, and it's a worldwide production. That movie is coming to town. But it's not here yet. All we have now is previews. Who are the previews? You. And you. And you. You're the previews. You are to live the life of Jesus to a watching world and make him so beautiful that everyone in your influence circle is saying, I need a ticket. And then you get to say to them, well, you don't need to buy it. Jesus has already paid the way. Let me tell you how to get it in this movie. Do you know the last explicit truth we live in a world of darkness and decay, but Jesus has entered this world from the outside and brought salt and light, which is you and I. Do you know the last explicit truth, and it's a quick truth, but the last one is this. Jesus has a very high opinion of his church. In the text, the word order in the Greek always started with a verb and then the subject, but Jesus flips it, and he starts with the subject and the verb. It could be translated this way. You, no, I mean you are the salt of the earth. You, no, I mean you are the light of the world. Jesus believes that we have astonishing significance. Do you know what that means? That means that every time, tomorrow morning, evening, you sit down and you pull out your Bible app and you're reading through the Bible this year, that every time you do that, craving the Father's voice, that is more important than anything you will receive from the New York Stock Exchange. Do you know what it means? It means every time you make the discipline of neighboring a part of your life where you're praying for your neighbors at work or home, you're engaging in conversations and you're inviting them to your table or to our table, that is more important than anything you will read on the front page of the Washington Post. Do you realize that anytime you sign up out there in the hub for our nine health fair and serve the medical needs of our community, or this summer when you sign up, we're gonna take a group down. We just had two people come back. We're gonna send more down this summer to minister to immigrants on the border while they await processing. Anytime you serve our community or the immigrant community or any community, you are doing something that's more important than the next blockbuster film coming down the roll of Hollywood. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You have massive significance. The greatest force on the planet is us. I was walking the Freedom Trail several years ago, and I walked into Park Street Church is right there in the hub of Boston. It's still a lively evangelical church. And they had this picture in the foyer. Do you know who this is? Ho Chi Minh, the leader of North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Well, I was intrigued. Underneath the picture, they had a framed uh, text. 
And the text said, this is Ho Chi Minh. Did you know that in the years 1912 and 1913, Ho Chi Minh worked as a pastry chef at the Parker House Hotel on State Street between Tremont Temple and Park Street Church. And then it said in big capital letters, what if someone had invited him to Park Street? You see, it's because we do not realize how much we matter that we are so timid with the gospel. When we realize how much we do matter, that we are salt of the earth, light of the world, then every conversation we have with another person is, God, what if? Do you have enough what if in your life? Do you realize who Jesus says you are? Some of you are here this morning and you're thinking, I've never thought of it that way, but I want significance. I want my life to mean something. I want to know this most beautiful, amazing person, Jesus. And the, Paul the apostle says to you this morning that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You want to be salt and light? Just say to Jesus, you're my Lord, I'm yours. We close with a prayer, a blessing, the sermon, and then we're going to sing it. All right? I'll say it over us. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may pray for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. And we say together, amen.